As we get started this morning, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a few verses here this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And as we get started here, this ball was my thing. Any of you kids like basketball? You like to play? Oh, some of the older kids too. Grown-ups like basketball. Awesome. Basketball was my thing. And I think my love for basketball started when I was probably fourth or fifth grade. My brother introduced me to a video that I absolutely fell in love with. It was called Larry Bird, A Basketball Legend. Anybody seen it? Oh, it's amazing. The highlights were unbelievable. The, the, the skill and the dedication that that man had. When I was a kid, I watched a guy like Larry Bird and the way that he could handle the ball, the way that he could shoot, the way that he could pass. It seemed like he had eyes all around his head. He was unbelievable. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be just like Larry. I wanted to be able to shoot like him, to pass like him. There was one thing I didn't want to be like Larry, and that was wearing those crazy little shorts, skimpy shorts, that were so popular back in the day. That was one thing I didn't desire. But Larry Bird was amazing, and I wanted to emulate everything about him. So much, in fact, that I looked for ways to get better, looked for ways to improve in my skills, looked for ways to increase my my understanding of the game. When I was in sixth grade, I got a hold of of these videos called Pistol Pete's Homework Basketball. It was like an eight-video series. There was a video on each of the major uh, aspects of the game. There was a video on shooting and dribbling and ball handling. And I committed myself to watching these videos, learning the drills, and practicing every spare moment I could find. Because my commitment was unshakable. I wanted to be the best basketball player that I could possibly be. And I realized that if I was ever going to achieve greatness... Some of you look at me and say, wow, how did you ever get to be so great? You know what? (laughs) Kids, here's the secret. I had to be focused in on the fundamentals of the game. So every moment of every day, I had a ball in my hand. I slept with my basketball. Because Pistol Pete said, if you want to be great, you got to have that ball in your hand at all times. So your fingers get used to how it feels. So you know how to maneuver it around. You You can be highly skilled in your craft. In order to be all that I could be, I first needed to devote myself to the basics. A firm grasp on the fundamentals would enable me to grow into the athlete that I dreamed of being. You know, in much the same way, when we talk about our walk with God, the first century church had a dream. They desired to be all it is that God had for them. They they desired to grow in their newfound faith, that they might live and walk in a way that was honoring and glorifying to the Lord. As we open up the book of Acts, we find that the gospel is on the move. And I love the book of Acts because it talks about the birth of the church. Coming on the heels of the gospel, Acts bursts into the scene and God is moving in amazing ways. If you remember not too far back in the Gospels, you find Jesus shattering the expectation of the people. As the people endured 400 years of silence, right? No prophet had spoken. And then Jesus bursts on the scene and everything pointed to the fact that Jesus was God's man, right? The people are getting excited. 
But their expectations were so misplaced. They misunderstood what it was that Jesus came to do. See, they were looking for somebody who would step into their life and make their messy lives clean again. They were looking for somebody who was going to burst onto the scene in the first century and, and, and transform the way that they lived. Looking for somebody who would overthrow the Roman rule. Looking for someone who would right the societal wrongs. But see, Jesus, when he came onto the scene, came to do so much more than they ever thought possible. You see, Jesus paved the way for righteousness before the Father. He bridged the gap between us and God's glory. We look at Romans chapter 3 and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as man looked at his dire condition, he realized that that the law revealed to him the, the wickedness of his own heart and said, I cannot do this on my own. And because I'm a sinner, I deserve what? Death in hell forever and ever and ever. And when Jesus burst onto the scene in the Gospels, he came to make righteousness possible. He bridged the gap between us and God's glory. He lived the life that I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserved. He took on my hell so that I could have his heaven. That's the gospel. Jesus revolutionized the way they thought about life and ministry. He changed everything. And then as we move into the book of Acts, we see Jesus commissioning his followers. You see, they weren't just saved from eternal wrath, but God called them to live an abundant life. And I imagine as they they watched this man get crucified on the cross, the feelings of defeat as who they thought was going to be king is now dead. And then Jesus rises from the dead. And he comes to them in the book of Acts, chapter 1. He commissions his followers. He said, you will receive power in chapter 1, verse 8. After this, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You see, I've saved you for a purpose. I want you to take the light of this message, the light of the gospel, to a world that doesn't know me. And you are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. As Jesus was challenging them, his message was clear. Guys, you're going to turn the world upside down for the honor and glory of my name. And then Jesus was taken up into heaven. And the scripture said that they stood there gazing into heaven. And the angel comes back and says, what are you doing? Why are you looking back? So be about my work. Be about the things that are important to me. Be committed to the basics of the Christian faith. Get after it, guys. And as they, decided, they departed from that moment, they returned to Jerusalem, and they were faithful to the commands of Jesus. And as a result of the Holy Spirit's work and Peter's faithfulness, we find in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls came to know Jesus that day. I don't think you heard me. 3,000 souls came to know Jesus that day. Holy cow. So now, imagine you're the disciples, the the followers of Christ, and you got 3,000 new converts 
Think of it in, in, in terms of human growth and development. It's like having 3,000 babies. <laughs> the closest analogy I could think of in my head, it would be like having the Duggars over to your house for dinner. Right? 19 kids and counting. Hungry mouths need to be fed. Life produces appetite. The disciples recognized this. Daniel talked about this last week. A hunger for the doctrine, right? The sound doctrine. These mouths were hungry. Much like a newborn infant needs nutritious calories for growth. These new converts had appetites for growth. They desired to learn. They wanted to have minds that were saturated in the truths of Scripture. Because they wanted to be all it is that God had laid out for them to be. They wanted to live life to its fullest. You know, in order for the church to grow out of its infancy in Acts chapter 2, it was necessary for them to embrace the basics that they might be all that God desired for them to be in the midst of a world that doesn't know him. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That they may grow. This group of believers were hungry. They were hungry to grow. These basics of the Christian faith are seen in the latter part of Acts chapter 2, and they're going to serve as the foundation for gospel growth in the first century church. And I would argue that these basics of the Christian faith are necessary for our growth as well as a church. If we look at our lives as a, as a church, brothers and sisters, and we say, you know what? I want to be all that God has me to be. I want to live life to its fullest. I want to turn Linden and Fenton and Grand Blanc and Flint and the towns that you live in upside down for the sake of the kingdom. Then we need to have a mindset that says, back to the basics. The way I think, guys, is I'm a keep-it-simple-stupid kind of guy. Because if it gets too complicated, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose the strategy, and I'm going to forget. And it's as if God in his sovereignty gives us this book of Acts so that we could understand what simple faith really looks like. The crazy thing is the more we complicate it, the more we mess things up. So here's the call. Back to basics, right? As we look at our text this morning, In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we're going to see these basics of the Christian faith broken up into three key areas. Okay, These are going to serve as our headings for this morning. First of all, we're going to see healthy appetites. Secondly, we're going to look at dynamic togetherness. And then lastly, this morning, we're going to look at generous hearts. Let's begin this morning by discussing healthy appetites. We're going to start by reading the text. I want you to follow along. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The author writes this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed together, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings. They were distributing the proceeds to all, as many as had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together and the breaking of bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hmm. Luke opens up the section by stating in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves. Think about this idea of devotion. What does it mean to devote yourself? That meant every fiber of their being throbbed with with the apostles' teaching. That means every craving of their heart ran after the apostles' teaching. That meant that they had hearts that were fixated on the nourishment that would lead to life. That means that they were willing to forsake all the garbage that the world had to offer They were in a place where they were ready to stop listening to the voices in their head that were telling them, you can find joy here, you can find joy there, and their hearts ran after truth. They recognized the authority that God gave to the apostles, and they desired to devote their very lives to something that mattered. They ached for that sound doctrine. That's what they wanted. I imagine they probably said, you know what, for years I've been feeding on garbage. Be like living your entire life eating nothing but Lucky Charms all day long. You're going to be fat. You're going to be lethargic. You're not going to have the energy you need for life. Sorry if you love Lucky Charms. I love Lucky Charms. Amen. But you know, they recognize that if we're ever going to grow... We need calories that are going to lead to growth. If we're ever going to be what God desires for us to be, then we have to run hard after the things that matter. Their priorities reflected their values. They ordered their lives around the truth, and they hungered for more. Why? Because in Jesus was life. You know, if, if Jesus was the source of life, then that means that as I linger in his presence, I'm going to find the strength that I need to face everything that I face during the course of my day. Their hearts ran to the gospel. They loved it. They cherished it. And they never wanted to get over it. You know, what did this, what did this kind of devotion look like? I imagine as they, as they devoted themselves to the word, I, I imagine that this time in the word, clinging to the truth that they had, right? I can't get enough of it. I imagine it meant ordering the events of their life around the truth. You know, see, in today's day and age, we we tend to look at life and say, I'm going to live my life to the fullest, and I'm going to fill in the cracks with the things that God says is important. That's why, you know, when I say, hey, how was your time in the Word this week? So many will answer, you know what? It was a busy week. Wow, did you forget to eat this week? Did you forget to sit at the dinner table this week and consume calories? No, I didn't forget that. But you forgot to be in the Word? In Jesus' life, forsaking Christ, forsaking His Word, forsaking sound doctrine is saying, you know what, I'm, I'm happy being an infant. I'm happy being unhealthy. I'm happy being anemic. This first century church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They they ran hard after it. They had a mindset that said, God, God's truth is everything. Nothing else matters. 
truth is we struggle so much with this type of devotion. I say we because I'm in the boat with you, okay? I battle with it every day. I fight with the flesh. And we struggle with it because this type of devotion is, is countercultural. This way of thinking goes against the grain of society. It requires the full abandonment of self. A willingness to crucify my own agenda that I might live for a different value system. It flies in the face of the American dream. The world would say, you you have a right to your own happiness. Do what pleases you. Pursue it passionately. After all, God desires for your happiness above all else, doesn't he? You know what the kids kids and I talked about this in youth group? Is God more interested in happiness or your joy? You see, happiness is contingent on circumstances. And if I'm placing my happiness in anything other than Jesus, what happens when it goes away? I'm in despair. I'm dire. I'm desperate. But if instead I'm anchoring my heart to the reality that God has saved me, the the peace and the acceptance that I have in the gospel, and I'm running hard after that, you know what? When the trials of life come, my heart is anchored. So here's the question. Why don't I hunger for truth in this way? If I look at my own life and I ask that question, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I feel like I am so torn. Why don't I hunger for truth in this way? You know, I think rather than pursuing ultimate joy in Jesus, we embrace other things more temporal in nature. And these are things that in and of themselves may not be bad. But we allow them to take that prime seed in our hearts. Things such as career. I find my fulfillment in what I do. Career leads to status. Status brings me happiness. And doesn't God want my happiness? So I run hard after it. Nothing else matters. Or maybe for you it's something different. Maybe it's family. I feel a sense of happiness when I can give my kids the things that I didn't have growing up. Their happiness becomes my chief end. My days are defined by the management of schedules. In this I find fulfillment. Why? Because it feels good knowing that I am the provider of their happiness. Or maybe for you it's pleasure. If it feels good, do it. I run hard after what satisfies me. Maybe it's entertainment. I desire amusement. I seek to pass the time with movies, music, sports, leisure activity. Fill in the blank. You know, in and of themselves, these, many of these areas are not all sinful. However, for many, these pursuits define us. We live for family. We live for career. We live for pleasure or for entertainment. It becomes the measure of our lives. And the first century church understood the importance of gospel centrality. And they sought to live their lives in such a way that their Christ-centered values shined through above all else. They cherished the gospel. They didn't ever want to get over it. That's why they devoted their lives to it. They devoted their energy to it. So here's the question. What would it look like for us as a church to run hard after God in this way? To devote ourselves 
to the teaching? Well, I think that we would be striving to be in church every time the doors were opened. Not to check the box and say, I'm always there. But we'd strive to be there because the word is being taught and I can't get enough. I want to grow in this. I want to learn more. I'm hungry for it. My heart is craving it. I want to grow. But not just being here. We'd be engaged. We'd be connected. We'd be thinking and processing and working to understand the deep truths about God. We'd also be pursuing time in the Word as a regular part of everyday life, and we wouldn't be making excuses as to why we haven't been in the Word. We'd be talking about the Word to our kids. We'd be ministering the Word faithfully to those in need. Sadly, for many of us, this just simply is not the case. Why? Well, truthfully, I think for many in the church, we desire a gospel that conforms to my kingdom and not a gospel that takes me from the domain of darkness and transfers me into the kingdom of his beloved son. ...way to me. And they said, you know what? Oftentimes we look at the gospel as though here I am, and I'm, I'm looking at my life, and I'm saying my life is messy and this and that and the other. My career is in shambles. My relationships are all over the place. My, my finances are a wreck. And when I look at the gospel, I want Jesus to step into my mess, to clean it up, to make it nice. And Jesus plus my yuck equals success. So bring Jesus into my yuck and make it nice again. God, that's what I want. But that's not what Jesus is interested in. The scripture says he takes me from my mess, which is the domain of darkness, and he transfers me into the kingdom of his beloved son. He rewrites the equation, brothers and sisters, so that you don't delight in that mess anymore, so that you don't delight in that yuck. And instead, as a newborn infant now, you are to crave the sincere spiritual milk of the word that by it you might The early church understood that if they were ever going to grow, then they needed to have appetites that would lead to growth. But you know, not only did they devote themselves to healthy appetites, Scripture also says that they devoted themselves to dynamic... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, this life pursuit was never meant to be done in isolation. We're called to pursue the life of faith and to pursue it in community. The first century church embodied that. They recognized that if they tried to go it alone, that they were going to fail miserably. That this was not a challenge that you could live out in isolation. This was not a pursuit to be done on your own. This wasn't to be understood as, you know what, God made you right, you're good. Now, you go off by yourself and do your thing. No, they needed each other. They needed each other. And all too often, we underestimate the importance of togetherness in community. Truth is, community is a critical component of God's recipe for growth in His church. The New Testament is saturated with God's commands for dynamic togetherness. We could spend weeks 
going through each of these, and we're not going to. Um, But we see this togetherness modeled in all of the one another passages in Scripture. And I'm going to go through these quickly, and I would encourage you, jot them down peace with one another. In Romans chapter 12, be of the same mind with one another. In Romans 15, accept one another. In Ephesians 4, gently, patiently tolerate one another. In Ephesians 4, be tender-hearted, forgiving to one another. Bear with one another. James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another. John 13, love one another. Serve one another. Galatians 5. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12. Give preference to one another. In honor, Romans 12. Be subject to one another. Ephesians 5. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Philippians 2. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. 1 Peter 5. You know, in Acts 2, Luke states that the first century church devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were committed to being together. And you know what? This was so much more than a social connection. This wasn't a a, a gathering of people with like interests. Love and passion was the person and work of Jesus. The gospel united them. The gospel was their connection. They embraced the truths of Scripture when when Paul writes that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made like Him unto His death. This first century church says, you know what? We want to gather together around the gospel that we might know Him. This wasn't just and this wasn't just a, a, a factual knowledge, a, a recollection of the truths about Jesus. No, this was an experience. They wanted to understand him intimately. This was, this was meant to reflect the way a husband knows a wife. Tight, intimate, connectedness. Fellowship in the gospel is what they longed for. They ran hard after it. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, it says. They celebrated Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection as the source of all life, the source of all meaningful fellowship. We're going to have the privilege of taking the Lord's table here in a few minutes. This first century church said, you know what? We don't ever want to forget. We don't ever want to forget why we gather. So we're going to commit ourselves to the taking of the elements, to to the observance of the Lord's table. Why? Because the gospel is everything to us. You strip Jesus out of the equation and we are nothing. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the sharing of joys in life together, the sharing in needs. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers. This was vital. You know, when we think about prayer, I think oftentimes we practically function with prayer like a, like a domestic intercom. 
You know, John Piper, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. He said, prayer, you know, is not to be thought of as a domestic intercom where we get on the horn and we squabble the dad when we have issues with our siblings, but rather to be thought of as a wartime walkie-talkie. Our way, our means of connecting with our commander-in-chief because, brothers and sisters, we are in a war. They recognized that prayer was vital. They devoted themselves to it. It was a critical aspect of their fellowship the sharing of needs, the casting of their anxieties on Him, 1 Peter 5, right? Humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time He will exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you and He can care for you better than you can ever care for yourself. They were desperate for this. They needed this. And they said, you know what? If we're going to gather, then let's be committed to the gospel. Let's be committed to prayer and let's be devoted to the word. They longed to be together. Verse 46 says that they attended temple together daily. They broke bread together. They shared meals in their homes together with glad and generous hearts. They couldn't get enough of this dynamic togetherness. And they looked for ways to be together with the body. Because your body shares common threads of life and and, and a common heartbeat and a common vision and a common strategy and I can't get enough. It wasn't about filling in the cracks of life for them. It was everything for them. What about you this morning? Does your heart long for this kind of togetherness? What is keeping us from engaging in this way? Perhaps this lack of engagement is precisely the reason that we're struggling and stagnating in our walks with God. Because we fail to press in to the fellowship of the body of Christ. The importance of joyously pressing into the fellowship of faith. And they made dynamic togetherness a priority pursuit. It was foundational to their growth as Christians. And I would argue that it's foundational to our growth as a church as well. This is why we're pursuing small groups. It's not because we're looking at the church and saying, you guys need more social connection. No, it's that we need more gospel. We need more ministry of the word together. We need more bearing up under one another's burdens, giving them together to, the, to, to Jesus and allowing him to work in our hearts and, and, and minds God is calling us to a greater level of commitment to one another. Without it, we will fail. You know, as they pressed into the basics of their Christian faith, not only did they pursue a healthy appetite and run hard after dynamic togetherness, but they also embraced generous hearts that flowed out of gospel-centric priorities. Verses 44 and 45 state this. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They had all things in common. Think about that for a second. Right? It started with the gospel. Shared gospel vision as the bedrock and the basis for their relationships, shared struggles. They were all going through the yuck in the first century. They were all battling with the same issues, 
the same financial burdens, the same life burdens, shared life burdens, shared needs, shared vision, shared values, which led to shared resources. They had all things in common, the scripture says. This was Jesus' desire for the church, that they might live and breathe and function as one. If one of us hurts, all of us hurt. If one of us rejoices, all of us rejoice. If one of us has need, all of us respond. This is how they lived. They sold their possessions that they might give to a cause much greater and much grander than their own interests, than their own agenda, than their own wants or needs. This sounds radical. How could people live like this? Everything in common? Really? I think the answer is simple. Jesus was their treasure. Jesus was their treasure. And the scripture is faithful to say, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Longing for more of Jesus meant that they were willing to give in a way that reflected his heart, his mercy, his love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another, John says. And there is nothing more loving than giving that others may prosper. Resources follow priorities. And I'm going to be really honest with you. This, is, this part of the passage is where I felt my toes crunched the hardest. You know, sometimes there's messages where you feel like, man, this was, a, this was a toe stomper. This was a message that hurts, and this was a message that stung. As I'm working through this passage, and I'm asking myself the question, what does this look like in a healthy church? I would venture to say, brothers and sisters, that the reason we struggle financially as a church is not that faith lacks resources. But I would say that resources of faith church follow the priorities of her people. When I look at my resources and I look at what God has given me, and I think of all the ways that I want to use my tax return in this coming year, the first thought for me is not, how can God use this money that I'm getting back from the government? My first thought is, ooh, I'd love to take a vacation. Ooh, I'd love to do this. Ooh, I'd love to put this money towards my kitchen renovation. Ooh, I'd love to. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And the point is not that any of those things are bad, but the point is this. Ooh. The point is this, brothers and sisters, if we are not faithful to run hard after the things of God, if his vision and his values and his priorities aren't driving our finances, then what are we really living for? The first century church thrived. They flourished. Why? Because Jesus was first. The gospel was first. Do we desire to see the world turned upside down for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of the kingdom? Then we need to embrace the agenda and the priorities of Acts chapter 2. 
So many times, churches exist in the infant to toddler phase. It'd be like me being 40 years old and still running around like a toddler. If that were the case, you'd look at me and you'd say, Mike, something's not right. You're not fit to lead, let alone have a family. You know, we expect that as you get older, maturity happens. And if that's going to happen, if we're going to grow in the way that God desires for us to grow, then we need to be after the priorities spoken of in Acts chapter 2. As the first century church committed herself to to healthy appetites, dynamic togetherness, and generous hearts, God was faithful to meet them in that pursuit. And he did an amazing thing. Verse 47 states that he brought gospel growth, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Multiplication came as a result of living out the values of embracing a kingdom-building agenda. People were being being drawn into this dynamic community of faith. Because it was otherworldly. They couldn't understand it. But these people, they, they seemed to give everything, and yet their hearts were joyful. There was a peace that protected their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It was unbelievable. Same purpose. What do we desire to see in this area, brothers and sisters? What do we do with truths like this? How do we respond? Where do we go from here? As we wrap up our time and we we prepare our hearts for moving into the Lord's table, I'd ask you to do a couple things. I'd ask you, first of all, to pray. Ask God to reveal to you the areas of your life that do not reflect his priorities, his heart, his vision. And I promise you, that's a prayer that you can take to the bank. God will answer every time. God, show me the ways in which I am living for self and I am not pursuing your kingdom agenda. Show me, God. Show me how I'm foolishly using my time. Show me how I'm foolishly using my talents. Show me, God, how I'm foolishly using my resources. And you know what, kids? I want you all to listen to me for a second. This is not just a prayer for mom and dad. Hear me in that. This is a prayer for all of us. Because God wants to use the kids in this room to turn the world upside down for the honor and glory of the king. He wants to use you, kids. And that's why I've invested all of my adult ministry and working with young people, because I believe with all my heart that God wants to use the kids. But more than that, God wants to use all of us. Then we need to seek his face and say, God, show me the ways. Show me the ways in which I've drifted far from you. And as God reveals to you those things, repent. Turn from your futile pursuits and run hard after God. Ask him. What steps would you have me to take, God? What steps would you have me to take? And no matter how big the step, don't rationalize it away. God, you want me to do what? No. Are you kidding me, God? No. You couldn't possibly mean that. You know, my wife and I, um, I'm going to share this with you. Several years back, 
my wife and I were just feeling convicted that when it came to, I mean, I'm willing to serve, I'm willing to give my time, I'm willing to minister, I'm willing to do all these things. But when it came to my financial world, that was an area that God expected me to manage. And I kind of held that real close. And my wife and I were feeling convicted and saying, you know what, we're not living freely with our resources. And we're just going to commit to praying hard and saying, God, what would you have us do? And we promise, God, we are not going to rationalize it away. And we're going to say yes, maybe when otherwise we would have said no. So sure enough, God gives us an opportunity. And he says, I'm going to test you in this. <laughs> and there was an opportunity to give. And I, I, I sat down with my wife and I said, hey, let's, let's pray about this. And here's what we're going to do. Because we, we said we're going to try to live and walk in a, in a manner of faith. And we're going to pursue what God wants. So let's be faithful to commit and saying, you know what, God, whatever you tell us to do, we're going to say yes to, no matter how big, no matter how challenging, no matter how scary. And my wife and I committed. We're not going to talk together about it. We're just going to pray. Then we're going to come together and we're going to share the number that God has laid on our heart. And uh, we took a week. And then God brought us, we, we, we came back together and we sat down and, and, and I said, what did God show you as you prayed and you sought his face? And she's like, I don't know that I want to share it. It's kind of big. I said, that's funny because I, I kind of have the same thing. But I've got a number that scares the tar out of me. I don't know how it's going to work. I said, well, what did God show you? I'm like, Boop. I hold it out. And she, she had the same number. And it was like, it was one of those moments where you look at it and you say, God, you want me to drain my reserves? God, that was my plan B. You don't understand, God. But you know what? We told you we're going to be obedient. So let's, let's commit. We said yes. We wrote the check. As scary as it was, we followed God and said, you know what? We're going to step out into the unknown to be used by you in a way that was really special. As scary as it was, God met us in that need. And I'll tell you, over the course of that next year, we had more random, unexplained blessings in our lives that God was using to show us, hey, you know what? You don't need your plan B. I'm, I am everything for you. And if your treasure is running hard after me, I am going to honor and I'm going to bless. And sometimes those blessings aren't monetary. I'm not here to say sow your seed and God's going to triple your income. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. We serve an amazing God with a gospel that reaches farther than any of us could ever possibly comprehend. And God delights in using his church to magnify his name and bring glory to his plan and his purpose for each and every person here. He wants to use us. He wants to use us. He delights in using us. Pray and run hard after God. Pursue the basics of your Christian faith. And watch as God multiplies his body. Watch as God grows his church. Watch as God uses us to turn the world upside down for the sake of who you are and for all that you've done. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your gospel. We thank you, God, for your sacrifice, your death, your burial, your resurrection. We thank you, God, for the way that you purchased redemption for us. We thank you, God, that the only reason the gospel is good is because you're in the center of it. We thank you, God, that you are both the gift and the giver, God. That you are our ultimate 
treasure. That Jesus paved the way for us to be with you. That heaven is only heaven because of you, God. Because you're there. And God, we delight in your presence this morning. We long to grow in our walk with you. We long to hunger for your truth. We long to be together. We long to give generously. We long to grow, dear God. Help us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen.